Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of the JAD podcast. My name is Dr. Vinod Nambudiri, and I'm coming to you from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. This month, we are covering an article by Dr. Steve Cohen and colleagues, High Dose, High Frequency Infliximab, a Novel Treatment Paradigm for Hydradenitis Separativa. I'll turn it over to Dr. Cohen to provide a brief introduction on who he is and what he does, and we'll take it from there. Great to have you. Thanks very much, and I'm glad to be able to speak this morning. I uh, am a professor and uh, chief of dermatology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and I'm also director of the Hydradenitis Separativa Center at Montefiore Medical Center. It's a unit, uh, the Hydradenitis Separativa Center is a unit that's been in operation for about five years now, and it grew from a large need for care to deal with these time-consuming and very ill patients that did not have a, a resource for care. What got you and your group interested in examining high-dose, high-frequency infliximab in particular in the, in the treatment of this condition? Introduction and organization of a treatment center brings together many patients that have not been adequately treated elsewhere. And there's really no primer for learning how to treat hydradenitis separativa. It is a disease which has come pretty much from the acne spectrum in terms of a treatment algorithm. And so that when we first started this program, it was very frustrating to begin to treat HS patients. We found that the acne treatment program, which involved monotherapy with an antibiotic and maybe some topical antibiotics and intralesional steroids was wholly inadequate. And as we began to explore what was available in the literature, among the things that were starting to become available and widely known in the HS community were anti-inflammatory drugs like adalimumab, Mera, and infliximab, or Remicade. And we have very sick patients, and the patients did not respond to the published treatment regimen. We use the HSPGA protocol for severity, which stands for hydradenitis separativa physician global assessment. It's a rating system that has five scales, five being the most severe. And most of our patients the vast majority were in the more severe category above a category of three. So these patients had numerous abscesses, sinus tracts, exudation, odor, pain, and were really having a very dysfunctional living circumstance. When we tried to introduce simple monotherapy with doxycycline or minocycline, and we expanded to some of the new multiple antibiotic treatment regimens, we were not getting satisfactory responses in these patients. And as we began to introduce infliximab as a therapeutic approach, we found that five milligrams per kilogram, the published uh, treatment recommendation at every six to eight weeks was very minimally effective in treating these patients. And that led us uh, to begin an exploration of other 
treatment regimens with uh, infliximab. However, we borrowed from our colleagues in gastroenterology and in rheumatology because they had already been using treatment regimens based on the severity of disease, which really wasn't the case with HS. Uh, The treatment regimens were really one size fits all. Give it a try with five milligrams per kilogram. If you don't get a response, that's going to be adequate. Whereas in the inflammatory bowel disease literature and in the rheumatoid arthritis literature, as the severity of the disease increases, we found that people were using higher dosing regimens. And this was a very attractive approach to us for two reasons. One reason is because we have the flexibility of changing our dosing regimen. But the second reason is that infliximab is the only treatment that allows for dosing based on weight. And so uh, it's not the only treatment, but other biologics that are available, for example, Stellara, is just nominally uh, based on weight and it's not all that effective in, in HS. So here we have a treatment that's weight-based, and it allows us with a population of very high BMI patients to modulate our treatment protocol. So initially, we began to explore the idea of increasing the dose to 7.5 milligrams per kilogram, and that was our first approach. And we found that that was substantially better than five milligrams per kilogram. And the reason, of course, this is happening is because it's weight-based. So we're really basing the dose on the actual weight of the patient rather than saying we're going to give one treatment protocol for every single patient, which is the case with adalimumab. And we found that with adalimumab, although it was much easier to get the drug because it was becoming FDA-approved, and now FDA approved, of course. When we have patients that have a BMI on the average, or 66% of our patients have a BMI above 35. <laughs> that is very big. These patients are you know, 250, 280, 300, up to 400 pounds. And using the same dose of adalimumab at that weight that we would use for a patient who's 120 pounds, obviously is going to make a substantial difference. So we first started using a higher dose and we were getting a good response, but then recognizing that the RA literature and the IBD literature had reduced the frequency, sometimes as short as three and four weeks, we began to shorten the regimen from eight weeks, six weeks to four weeks. When we got to four weeks, we realized we were getting to an optimal uh, dosing regimen. And it was not only optimal, but we were getting a majority of our patients were getting a substantive response. And when we realized that the HS community was not really taking this approach, um, we decided we would study our results and report them. Well, thank you for that overview of how you came up with the higher dose, high frequency regimen. It sounds like a, a case of understanding the treatment paradigm for these patients who are truly in need or inadequately served by current treatments, as well as learning from other fields in the literature and the management that insights that they have come up with for a variety of conditions, which is which is really inspiring to come up with this with this treatment. Maybe for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to fully read through this study, give us a, a high-level overview of the study design and what you were hoping to uh, accomplish with the benchmarks that you set for evaluation of patients. I know you alluded to the physician global assessment, 
but you also used a couple other outcomes measures besides just the, the physician's assessment that you were interested in. Right. Well, the study is basically um, an overview of some 42 patients that received seven and a half milligrams per kilogram of infliximab and received these received this dose for 12 weeks. They were evaluated at four and 12 weeks, and our measures of efficacy predominantly included HSPGA. Remember, that's the five-point scale of severity for hydradenitis separativa. And NRS, that's a numerical rating scale of pain. And the pain scale is a simple pain scale of 10 is the worst pain you've ever experienced and zero is no pain at all. Where do you think you fit today? And since patients are their own controls, even though some patients may be extremely sensitive to pain and report high levels of pain, that doesn't quite synchronize with what the observer is seeing. We can compare one to the other because it's the same patient giving us the same results from one time to the next. These are our two principal outcome measures in terms of efficacy. And we also administered quality of life questions along the way to see what was happening in terms of activities of daily living and so forth that would affirm and support what we were seeing clinically. These are mostly my patients. And so I was seeing these patients at both of the time intervals. My colleagues, some of them students, uh, were incredibly valuable partners in bringing together this data. And in seeing all of the patients, we, we see the patients together in our treatment center twice a week. And this was a simple treatment approach that allowed us to gather information. I think the big drawback of the study is that it's very hard to have controlled population, truly controlled population that you're not treating. And so we lose something from that, particularly because the treatment is so effective compared to anything that's available that it almost seems uh, irresponsible to deny a treatment to a, a very sick patient. But this was basically our approach. And of course, like any study, we really didn't know how effective the treatment was in terms of the actual numbers, but our data is pretty much showing that our patients are improving in a statistically significant manner from 40 to 70% from their baseline over the period of time that we observed them. And, you know, this was our study. We actually wrote this up and reported it recently, but it's based on data that we acquired more than a year ago, probably a year and a half ago. And we have tripled the amount of patients right now. We have, we have over 200 patients that are receiving infliximab using the treatment algorithm that we've introduced. And the data has really held up. You know, we've become kind of a standard in our community with so many patients coming in because we now have something to offer that is far beyond what we can do, particularly the, as I say, the heavier set patients. There are other reasons for using infliximab besides weight-based therapy. Um, there is data in the literature that suggests that infliximab is also more efficacious as a anti-TNF alpha drug. But just in terms of our treatment findings, we came to the conclusion that these treatment protocols that we've offered represent a relatively, well, I should say a substantial improvement in optimizing 
the treatment uh, approach uh, using the drug. One of the interesting findings that I was intrigued by in your manuscript, you described that there may be some relationship between male sex and improved outcome at some of the time points that were analyzed. I'm curious if that's something that you think is real. Do you think that's something that's been holding up in your expertise of evaluating patients beyond the time point of the study, or if you have any thoughts as to why that might be? I don't have a good reason. I don't think, I didn't say I, said so we have, you know, belabored this point and decided, should we report it, should we not report it, how should we present this to the dermatology and larger medical community. But it's a fact that early on, we observed that our male patients had significantly better HSPGA scores and better outcome early on. Remember, we had two time points predominantly. It was four and 12 weeks. And so the earlier time point um, is where we saw the significant difference. They sort of evened out a bit over time. We don't have a good reason for the male predominance, but one of the interesting things about the acne family of diseases, particularly hydratinitis separativa, is that the disease begins at puberty. And it tells us that male hormone plays a big role in the expression of the disease. It's probably not the cause, but it's certainly a factor in terms of the outcome in certain patients. And why male patients had a better response is right now it's inexplicable, but recognizing that we're at a very primitive phase in understanding hydratinitis separativa, much less understanding that we do for acne, which is not well understood either, by the way. But HS has a long way to go. Um, there's never been an RO1 study from the NIH for HS. <laughs> That's how primitive we are. And I think since we are at an early stage of understanding the disease, we thought that, well, we should report this, but I don't think I could give you a, a sensible explanation for why this finding is uh, present. Um, the majority of our patients, incidentally, are women. It's probably not two to one, but it's maybe 75, 70% of our patients are women. And I don't think that also reflects the occurrence in the community. I think that we just happen to see that in our own treatment center, but there doesn't seem to be a, a sex predilection for the disease in general. And the severity of the disease is not expressed any greater in men than it is in women. But we did make this observation that the men were more responsive to the drug. And there are many potential explanations for that, which I think would be uh, pure speculation. One of the things in the management of hydradenitis that, that you've referenced, you know, other biologics or other treatment strategies, uh, one of the things that makes infliximab stand out by being able to weight-based dose it is that it's also an intravenous infusion. Was that something that was challenging for you, for your patients to kind of navigate in this study or in sort of subsequent management of these patients to be offering them an, an infusion therapy, which has its own sort of logistical challenges for the management of this condition? That's a very good question. And that deals a lot with the social environment uh, in which we have to practice medicine. I'm someone who, my background is complex medical dermatology. 
And so I've had experience with intravenous drugs for a long time using IVIG and rituxin, more recently belimumab. I mean, there's just a range, and infliximab for psoriasis patients, a certain type of psoriasis patient, and for pyoderma gangrenosa. So I had experience with using intravenous uh, drugs that many dermatologists wouldn't begin to uh, have an experience with. And uh, if I tell you that the challenge was manageable, it's because of that experience. I think it's a huge challenge for a physician in the community to begin to develop resources. However, I'm here to tell you that there are resources that are unbelievably easy to use. It's just a matter of accessing them. And of course, we're all really busy and uh, we often have a volume-driven practice and it's, it's hard to spend that time and how do we allocate the resources? But we began with using our infusion services at the medical center. That's really inconvenient for many patients and it's not accessible to people who are in the community. They have to refer the patients to us so that we can have the credentials that will allow us to uh, place a patient under therapy. We did that for most of the period that involved the patients under the study. But as you may know, in recent months and almost a year now, two things have changed around the way in which we treat patients. One is the introduction of biosimilars to infliximab. So infliximab now has two biosimilars. Um, The trade names for those are Renflexis and Inflectra. These are marketed at about a third of the price of infliximab and sometimes less. And so insurance companies are much more receptive now if you want to use intravenous therapy to saying, okay, well, we'll let you use it as long as you use a biosimilar. The biosimilars seem to have the exact same efficacy. But, but one of the things that has made treatment accessible to people in the community, if they are willing, is home infusion services. Home infusion services are universal. Most dermatologists have no idea about home infusion services, but the state of New York and the state of New Jersey has uh, probably a dozen infusion services. Uh, they come into the home and they administer cancer chemotherapy and drugs for IBD and, and rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatological diseases. Um, it's incredibly convenient for the patient, particularly for drugs that are um, one time, one use only, um, as opposed to long-term intravenous administration like for osteomyelitis or other diseases that require a longer term administration. And making contact with the home infusion service is a delight to the home infusion service. They take over the pre-authorization process and they write the orders. They just require confirmation from the physician who becomes the physician of record and is signing off on the treatment algorithm but they make it very, very easy. So going back to your question, it is a huge challenge initially to get patients approved for infliximab. And the main reason wasn't so much the mechanics because I've explained my background. The main reason was insurance resistance to providing authorization for a very expensive drug in our medical center. It's like $20,000 plus per treatment which is happening every month, they're not very excited about approving that. The insurance companies are not excited about approving that for a drug that's not approved by the FDA. So we have a huge problem here. And the literature suggests that 
infliximab is an okay drug, but not really great. <laughs> you know, it's not really something that, you know, you want to send an article to your local insurance company and say, well, here we have a paper that shows the superior efficacy of the drug. Meanwhile, our observations were totally discordant with what was in the literature as we began to increase the dose and reduce the frequency of the interval between treatments. And it was really a, a very important driving force for us to report this data uh, because when we went to the Symposium for Hydradenitis Superative Advances, it was an annual international meeting, we found that nobody was using the drug for the very reason that I said, that the insurance authorization was impossible. So um, there was a kind of a, a scientific drive to want to report the data so that we could show the efficacy of this drug. But there's also a very practical matter that right now, when I want to ask for a prior authorization for infliximab, I submit our article. And there is uh, now another article that's out in the world that's using a similar treatment protocol. And it is uh, much easier to work with the insurance companies between the articles that we now have in literature and the less expensive alternatives to infliximab and the use of home infusion services. Just to give you an idea, uh, approximately 50% of our patients are now getting home infusion. It, that's a huge challenge in itself. It's not a simple thing to get a home infusion service. It's very easy to get them involved, but they want all your medical records. They want you know, to have a treatment protocol in place. They want prescriptions for the treatment, uh, for the uh, medications and for the anaphylaxis kits and for the ancillary drugs like Benadryl and acetaminophen that are being used along with the drug. So the physician really has to have some sort of a administrative resource to back up what they're doing because each patient requires a, an incredible amount of time. But the challenges are more along those lines than they are now in terms of getting uh, authorization. Great. That's a hugely helpful insight, I think, as, as people are considering you know, how to make this actionable that I think our listeners will find very valuable. So thank you for, for providing that. As we're kind of now taking these results into context, you know, based on your results here of high-dose, high-frequency infliximab, where does this now fall in your treatment armamentarium for patients with HS? There are approved treatments like adalimumab, you talked about antibiotics, but your article really makes the point that there's been a shift in focus towards early intervention, aggressive early intervention in the management of HS to limit the longer term morbidity of the disease. So I kind of wanted to hear your insights on your therapeutic approach to your HS patients. Right. And that is really at the crux of the matter of how to approach patients with HS in general. And our treatment paradigm has really changed over the years. Initially, when we first began treating patients with HS, we found that the patients did not respond so well to monotherapy and even to kind of a zone therapy. And our zones are antibiotics, antiandrogen, and anti-inflammatory drugs. There are three zones of therapy. And we would approach with a single zone. We'd say, okay, we're going to treat this patient with antibiotics and see how they respond. And wow, they responded a little bit. And they'd say, well, I've received this drug by so many doctors and it's not working. You're just giving me more antibiotics, but I'm still um, in a lot of pain and I have a huge amount of drainage. 
So then we began to say, well, we'll, we'll do two zones. We'll use anti-androgen and antibiotic therapy. Ultimately, we found that although it's a, a huge burden to the patient, the gratitude that we get uh, reflects the response of the treatment algorithm in that we use all three modalities simultaneously. We're using a, an antibiotic regimen that includes topical and oral antibiotics. We're using an anti-androgen approach that's using, in the case of men, we're using finasteride, but in the case of women, we're using both a male hormone blocker in terms of spironolactone, and in some cases, finasteride too, by the way, and, um, and oral contraceptives. And then we're using anti-inflammatory therapy. When we combine all, you know, using one of these treatment approaches, it's got a limited value, although I think that the anti-inflammatory therapy is the most potent approach. We really need to use all three approaches to optimize the response to therapy. And so the patients with the most severe disease are the ones that we're reporting in this study, which is a slight bias in terms of the response to treatment. I think if we had included patients with milder disease, which we do now, we would be showing even higher response rates. And we do mention in the article that we are using other modalities of therapy. Since our treatment protocol for these patients is very similar, the thing that's the variable in these patients is the anti-inflammatory therapy and the dosing regimen, because almost everybody gets oral and topical antibiotics and anti-androgen therapy. So then we are really looking in this study at how anti-inflammatory therapy is influencing the treatment, and particularly infliximab. And so we're very aggressive with infliximab at this time in terms of treating our patients because there's something really great. I'll make an analogy with acne. You know, it's something really great when somebody comes in with severe cystic acne and you know they may be on the way to scarring to say, I have a drug for you that's going to really improve your life and it's going to make you better and it's going to put to sleep your cystic acne. Of course, that's a retinoid um, isotretinoin. Being able to do that with HS has an unbelievable emotional content in terms of dealing with the patients. The patient is shocked. They say, well, you're telling me that I'm going to get better? And we can really, you know, we're, we're, we're showing response rates of 70% in this article. And basically, it's really better than that in real life. You know, I'm not saying that the patients who are the most extreme, of which we have many, they still leave us with an immense challenge in terms of taking care of those patients in which we are exploring other modalities. We're about to report the use of vertepenem in this patient population, a drug that eclipses infliximab in terms of its efficacy. It's an unbelievably effective drug, but it's a daily intravenous treatment for six to 12 weeks. Uh, those patients need to have pick lines. The challenge for the, the dermatologist is much greater in terms of the actual administration of the drug. But we, we do have new modalities. And so what I'd like to leave people with is the notion that they should not back away from using antibiotics, anti-energin, and anti-inflammatory therapy simultaneously. Not be afraid of that because the patient is going to be the one to be the final arbiter of whether or not this is practical and effective. And it sounds impractical, um, but when the patients get better, they feel a totally different attitude about the way in which they're responding to the treatment and their willingness to go along with a treatment protocol that is not exactly in the armamentarium of most dermatologists. Thank you, Dr. Cohen, for that comprehensive 
review of your approach to treatment for patients with HS. I think that gives us a great roadmap for how to approach these very complex patients. And it sounds like from what you just hinted at, there's even more exciting research and development to be looking forward to from your group. I want to thank you and your colleagues for putting this work together and for your publication. I think it advances our knowledge in the field tremendously and gives us something exciting to work with. I want to thank everyone who was able to listen to this edition of the JAD podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again in a future episode. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.